Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelly. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. It is indeed. And a big welcome to you, Kelly. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Josh. I've been a longtime fan of Global Questions, so I'm super excited to be here. In case you missed the announcement last year, Hugh has moved on to bigger and better things, so sadly he won't be co-hosting the wrap-up anymore. But the good news is that Kelly is here to help us summarise the fortnight's news. As an international relations student, it's definitely a tick off the bucket list to be able to nerd out in a podcast with you. (laughs) Well, we certainly have some crazy stories to share with you all. There's been a lot going on over the Christmas break and the last few weeks. It truly has been a whirlwind couple of weeks for global politics and IR, so I'm really keen to get into it. Let's do it. We are back in the trenches in far eastern Ukraine. And you can see in some places they are very narrow, but they extend for miles. The conditions here are quite spartan. It's cold, but they are manning these positions 24-7, watching out for a possible Russian invasion. Josh, I'm sure that you and the listeners have heard about the Russian-Ukraine tensions that have been escalating since late last year. Around 100,000 Russian troops have amassed at Ukraine's borders over recent months. Efforts have intensified as the threat of war grows, a war many believe could now be imminent and very dangerous. There are so many things that we could delve into about Russia and Ukraine on this podcast, Josh. But for this episode, I found that European gas shortages and their link to Russia's aggression in Ukraine was particularly interesting. Uh, Yes, we touched on Europe's gas shortages on the wrap-up about six months ago. Gas prices have risen by about 46% in the last few months alone. So I imagine that the tensions between Russia and Ukraine have only made things worse. Well, you might be right there. Europe gets most of its gas from Russia through pipelines that run through Ukraine. So the prospects of a Ukrainian invasion threaten the supply of gas and thus have been used as a bargaining chip by both sides. Russia has reportedly cut its natural gas exports to Europe, causing prices to skyrocket. While some say this move is due to the tensions over Ukraine, Moscow insists that just isn't the case. And just to make things worse, a major gas pipeline to transport gas directly from Russia to Germany isn't operational. It's called the Nord Stream 2 and can't be used until Germany gives regulatory approval. Germany's energy regulator has temporarily stopped the approval process for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. This is because it's being used as a bargaining chip of sorts. Germany's foreign minister recently said that the Nord Stream 2 may be stalled if Russia's aggression continues. This signals Germany's alignment with the US's stance on the matter, as indicated in this interview with State Department representative Ned Price. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. We want to be very clear about that. And I'm sure that in the context of all of this and the prospects of a potential war, that the EU and the US are looking for alternative gas supplies for most of the countries in Europe. They surely are, and they've been hustling hard. The Biden administration has been creating market incentives for American gas companies to ship liquefied natural gas to Europe. 
Of course, shipping gas isn't as reliable because import capacity has a limit. Countries like the Netherlands has some ability to support European gas reserves, but they can't meet the demands of bigger nations like Germany. Interestingly, in the case of the Netherlands, gas extraction in the province of Groningen was supposed to stop in 2022. But ever since gas supplies have been low, the Dutch government has actually increased gas extraction in the area to help beef up local supplies. And it's been a huge source of contention because gas extraction actually causes minor earthquakes in the area. And Josh, I think the case of Honingen illustrates the human and environmental costs of gas shortages. Yeah, it sounds like the gas crisis is having effects all across the EU. And believe it or not, this isn't the only controversy Russia has been dragged into, as we'll find out in our next rather fishy news story. Do you realise, you know, these Irish fishing boats going out and when you get out there, these are going to be proper military warships. Yeah. You know, like, no, like well, are you well, worried? Yeah, of course we're worried. This is why we're raising this issue. So what we're looking for, Tommy, is very simply, be allowed to do what we always do, fish. Just go out there and fish there safely. Kelly, that was the CEO of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation talking on Irish Breakfast TV about his plans to, get this, sail a group of 60 fishing boats into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to disrupt a Russian naval drill. Okay, hold on. The average fishing boat is definitely no match for a naval ship, so why are Irish fishermen planning to disrupt the drill this way? Well, it's all because of the location of the naval drill. You see, while most of the world has been focused on what's going on in Ukraine, Russia quietly announced last week that it was planning to conduct a series of war games just 240 kilometres off the coast of Ireland. Now, that's far enough to be outside Ireland's territorial waters, but it's still well within Ireland's airspace and economic zone. So, needless to say, the Irish government demanded that Russia change the location. Certainly, I've made it clear to the Russian ambassador in Ireland that it's not welcome. Uh, This isn't a time to increase military activity and tension. And unsurprisingly, Russia refused to listen. And this is where the fishermen come in. So coincidentally, the precise location of the naval drill is actually a crucial fishing area for many Irish fishermen. They're worried that the war games will damage the environment and disrupt their fishing patterns. So when Russia refused to listen to the Irish government, these fishermen decided to take matters into their own hands. They declared that they would defy the Russian Navy and sail their ships into the middle of the war games. If anybody tries to impede my freedom of movement in Irish waters, well, they're international then they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in trouble. Now, it all seems pretty crazy, but it looks like their strategy may have actually worked. Over the weekend, the fishermen managed to secure a meeting with the Russian ambassador. And during that meeting, Russia agreed to leave a buffer zone between its navy and the Irish fishing ships. The Russian military, which had announced naval drills off the coast of Ireland, will move them further away after Irish fishermen vowed to disrupt them. And although it's a good outcome for the fishermen, it doesn't change the fact that the war games are still going to take place in Ireland's economic zone. As we speak, five Russian warships, including a missile cruiser, are making their way towards the area. 
where they will fire live missiles and rehearse battle scenarios. So, Josh, why is it that Russia is continuing to carry these naval drills so close to Ireland? Why can't they just choose a place within its own economic zone and avoid the whole fuss? Well, you see, Kelly, it seems that this move is designed largely to intimidate the European Union. Analysts have long warned that Ireland is the weakest part of the EU's border. It's isolated from the rest of the continent, it has one of the smallest defence budgets in the EU, and reportedly only has one working battleship. Russia is aware of this, and with tensions growing over Ukraine, it seems Putin wants to send a message. Russia knows the EU's vulnerabilities and is willing to exploit them. I still can't get over the fact that a bunch of fishermen managed to become key players in a major diplomatic story. Well, believe it or not, this isn't the only example of the fishing industry getting involved in territorial conflicts. What do you mean? Well, increasingly we're seeing countries use their fishing industry as a political and military force. Look at China, for instance. It has the largest fishing fleet in the world, with roughly 17,000 boats. And the Chinese government is really keen to take advantage of this. Over the last few decades, it has begun equipping these commercial fishing boats with weapons and spyware, creating what is effectively a shadow navy that's known as the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia. And we've seen this militia in action as recently as last year. China has sent 300 of these uh, fishing vessels into the area, or at least they're supposed to be fishing vessels, but when you look at it, the way they're lined up and the way they're organized looks more like a military maneuver. In March, China sent 300 of these militarized fishing boats to a Filipino island in the South China Sea that China claims is its own. The boats formed a blockade around the island for over three months, preventing anyone from entering or leaving. And China isn't the only one doing this sort of thing. Vietnam has also begun arming their fishing boats in order to try and reclaim parts of the South China Sea as well. And to give you a sense of how serious all of this is becoming, Indonesia has announced that it will hold an urgent summit this month to discuss militarised fishing with five other countries. And all of this goes to show that it's likely that the fishing industry will continue to play an important role in naval disputes in the future. Former Vice President Mike Pence visited Hungary last year for a conference on conservative values, and the American Conservative Union has been promoting plans for a gathering there dubbed CPAC Hungary later this year. Josh, this next story, in my opinion, signals the amount of controversy and political polarization that we can expect in elections across the world this year. In March, Hungary will host right-wing participants from the United States, Europe and South America for something the media is calling a far-right conference. It's an annual event put on by the American Conservative Union, which is called the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. Although CPAC has been hosted in various countries outside the US before, this one stands out. That's because the host country, Hungary, is ruled by ultra-right-wing leader Viktor Orban, who has many fans among American conservatives and former President Trump supporters. 
So what's behind the decision for Hungary to host CPAC this year? Well, Viktor Orban is seeking re-election in April this year. He is facing a formidable rival at the polls, as in an unprecedented move, six opposition parties have united to back one candidate. The registration period for Hungary's first ever opposition primary is over. In a historic move, six opposition parties are coming together, all in the name of ousting Viktor Orban from power. And so this conference is a significant opportunity for Orban to do speeches and photo ops, essentially aligning himself with some pretty prominent right-wing politicians who have already confirmed their attendance. This will include right-wing US senators Eduardo Bolsonaro, who's the son of President Bolsonaro, and Santiago Abascal, who is the head of Spanish far-right party Vox. Now, Orban's political affiliations and far-right ideology are no great secret. Orban has ruled Hungary for more than a decade. He has sharply cut immigration, limited the power of the free press, and rewritten election laws in his favor. He has transformed Hungary from a thriving democracy into one bordering on one-party rule. With this obvious misalignment with European Union values, Orban needs to make allies outside centrist and liberal European politics. Thus, the CPAC is a significant opportunity for him to push the needle of far-right policy in Hungary, and maybe even broader Europe, even further than he has before. So how is the EU responding to this? I mean, this is so far apart from their values. That's exactly right, Josh. Prominent European politicians like Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European Commission, are taking hard stances against Hungary. I've instructed my responsible commissioners to write a letter to the Hungarian authorities concerning or expressing our legal concerns before the bill enters. But to be honest, there aren't many options outside of diplomatic negotiations that EU member states can take. Firstly, expulsion of an EU member state isn't possible. And even attempts to block certain rights to EU privileges for Hungary have been prevented by Poland as you require a unanimous vote from EU member states. Legally, there have been attempts to get the European Court of Justice to impose financial penalties for several policies such as Hungary's anti-refugee laws. But I think the more interesting and important conversation that we all need to have as outside observers to Europe is the diversion between Hungarian and European fundamental values. These are actually legally binding values. They include human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, rule of law, and human rights, and are enshrined in the EU's founding treaty, the Treaty of Lisbon. But more importantly, they shape the EU's vision for the future and form the foundation for a liberal, unified Europe. In fact, Hungary had to comply with the fundamental values as a precondition to even join the EU in the first place. And with everything going on in the world and a clear move by Orban to solidify his position as a global icon for far-right ideology, I think it's prime time for all EU member states to consider the question, will a Hungary that is led by Viktor Orban fit into a European future? La patria saluda a su nueva mandataria, Iris Xiomara Castro Sarmiento. Kelly, our final story takes place in the small Central American nation of Honduras. 
In a historic moment, last week, the country swore in its first female president, Xiomara Castro. Prometo ser fiel a la república. And Castro hasn't only made history on account of her gender. She won the largest number of votes in her country's history. And she's the first candidate from her left-leaning party to ever win office. And what's more, her election could actually be a pivotal moment for both Honduras and even the rest of the world. Okay, let's unpack this then. So other than being the first female president for Honduras and the other things that you mentioned, why is her election so significant? Well, in order to understand that, I think it helps to know a little bit about Honduras as a country. It's one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere. 59% of Hondurans live in poverty. Honduras has also struggled with decades of corruption and political instability. In fact, Castro's husband, who was previously elected president of Honduras, was actually deposed in a coup in 2009. It all began at dawn on Sunday when some 200 soldiers surrounded the president's private home. They took him at gunpoint and flew him out of the country to neighboring Costa Rica. To make things worse, the country is also a major drug trafficking hub, and it has extraordinarily high crime rates. Violence continues unabated in Honduras. With more than 90 murders per 100,000 people, it is the country with the highest crime rate in the world. Castro has promised to tackle all of this, and if she's successful, she'll go down as one of the most significant presidents in Honduras' history. So what is the international significance of President Castro's election? Yeah, well, you may be wondering, like, why does it matter who's elected president of Honduras? After all, Honduras is only a tiny country with a population of about 10 million people. But you only need to look at the guest list for Castro's inauguration to see why Honduras is so important internationally. Okay, Josh, who was there? Well, for starters, US Vice President Kamala Harris showed up. And that's because the US doesn't have many friends in Central America. So it's hoping that Honduras will become a key ally. You see, America also wants Castro to succeed in improving living conditions in Honduras because the poverty and the corruption has caused hundreds of thousands of Hondurans to migrate to America. And the US really wants to reduce the amount of Hondurans showing up on their border. The other important guest at the inauguration was Taiwan's vice president. Taiwan's vice president, William Lai, is on his way to Honduras to show up the island's relationship with its ally. Mr Lai will attend the inauguration... Honduras is one of the last countries that recognises Taiwan's independence. So Taiwan's legitimacy depends in part on whether it can keep Honduras on its side. So that's why it sent its vice president to Castro's inauguration, along with medical supplies and promises of free trade. So just from those two examples, you can see that Castro's decisions will have international consequences. However, despite being in office for just a few days, she's already facing a big problem. Oh God, Josh, I feel like over the wrap up over the past six months, every single election we've talked about has faced big problems. So how big are we talking here? Well, very big. In fact, as big as problems can come, really. Her party has been torn apart by disagreements over who should hold key leadership roles in parliament. 
As a result, some of her MPs defected to the opposition and formed a rival parliament. So there are currently two parliaments in operation in Honduras, both claiming to be legitimate. Unless Castro can sort out her party and the parliament, the problems that plague Honduras look set to continue, and that is not going to be good for anyone. So it's safe to say I think this story has a lot of mileage left in it, so we'll be seeing more headlines about Honduras in the future. And that's all for this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week's episode will be the final part of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. Rhiannon will chat to two experts on how, despite all the challenges we've discussed this season, we can protect and strengthen democracy. Until then, follow our Instagram page at Global Questions for news updates, quizzes and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic about something you would like to know more about via our website. We will see you all soon. Bye.